This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Simon McKenzie, a research fellow at the UQ Law School. I'm part of the Law and the Future of War Research Group, and we've started this podcast to give us a chance to share some of the things we spend our time thinking and writing about. Questions like, how does international law cope with new technology? What new technological innovations are on the horizon? And how does this all fit with or represent a break from the history of international law? We plan to do this podcast in a way that's accessible to anyone that's interested, While international lawyers will be across some of the issues we'll discuss, we believe it's important to share our work with a wider public. Issues of war, law and technology impact us all. Today, we're starting at the beginning uh, and we're going to explore how the law of armed conflict deals with new technology. This is one of the key focuses of our research group, as I mentioned. And while we've been examining how uh, international law will regulate the use of autonomous systems by militaries, international law has always had to grapple with technological change. To help us put all of this into some perspective, we're joined today by Associate Professor Ryan Lavoya, my colleague at the UQ Law School and the leader of our research group. His work focuses on the legal challenges Uh, of military applications of science and technology. So there's really no one better to talk about these issues. Uh, Welcome, Ryan. Thanks, Simon. Great to be here. So let's start with a really basic question. What has law got to do with war? Isn't war the absence of law? Well, actually, quite the contrary. War is a very rule-governed activity, even though some of these... um, rules are often honoured more in the breach than the observance, but there's a lot of regulation around warfare. Uh, And if you look at armed forces as institutions, they're often very um, rule-guided entities. So there's actually plenty of law um, in warfare, even though we we often see or often discuss the breaches of that law rather than uh, instances where that law is being complied with. So what are, what are some of the specific ways that international law regulates war? Well, there are broadly speaking three ways in which international law tackles the problem of war. So first of all, international law tries to, as much as possible, eradicate war. So here, the rules contained in the UN Charter uh, are significant. So the UN Charter seeks to prohibit states from using force against each other, except in self-defense or with the authorization uh, of the UN uh, Security Council. Secondly, uh, international law seeks to prohibit and get rid of certain particularly uh, nasty weapons. Uh, Examples of that might be chemical weapons or biological weapons, uh, which are not only prohibited in terms of their use, but they're actually international legal mechanisms that try to reduce uh, the stockpiles of those weapons and prevent states from transferring such weapons to other states or or non-state armed groups. And finally, thirdly, uh, there's a set of rules generally known as international humanitarian law or the law of armed conflict, which seeks to regulate and limit violence once an armed conflict has already uh, broken out. With this final set of law, there's international humanitarian law or rules relating to the conduct of hostilities. 
does this body of law have anything to do uh, anything to say about the legality of war generally like how do what's the relationship between the rules on the use of force and the rules on the conduct of hostilities these are two very distinct bodies of international law uh, and and they apply independently of each other so once an armed conflict is uh, happening on the ground the no- law really no longer cares about uh, uh, who the aggressor might have been or who the defending party uh, might be. So the rules of, of international humanitarian law, the law of armed conflict, are by and large designed to protect certain particularly vulnerable groups of individuals. So at that stage, it doesn't really make much of a difference as to how the armed conflict um, uh, got started and who was in the right and who was in the wrong. So, yeah, very so distinct groups or very distinct sets of rules. So it's almost a kind of pragmatic uh, approach to the question of the legal fighting of warfare because I think there is something a little bit counterintuitive about that distinction drawn between use of force and conduct of hostilities. Definitely. There's a lot of pragmatism uh, in there in that international humanitarian law, as the label humanitarian indicates, is driven by humanitarian concerns. And that body of law is not terribly fussy with the often very politicized interpretation of the rules contained in the UN Charter uh, about what amounts to a use of force and under what circumstances self-defense is lawful. So pragmatically, in order to protect vulnerable individuals and significant significant objects, or objects that are significant to the civilian population, that law doesn't really discriminate between uh, uh, whether uh, a state was uh, uh, complied with the UN Charter when entering an armed conflict or not. Mm-hmm. So it's really a matter of yeah, separating out these two questions so that IHL applies regardless of the political complexity of, or disputes around the beginning of a war. Exactly. That's exactly right. So let's talk about the history of the law of armed conflict. How did it start? Sort of what were the conditions in which it came into being? Well, it's a slightly tricky question in that often the focus on the beginning of the law of armed conflict or international humanitarian law um, has to do with the the modern period of the law, if you will, so the uh, mid-1800s onwards. But really, international humanitarian law or the forerunners of international uh, humanitarian law, um, sometimes also labelled as the law of war, uh, really have a very, very long history. Uh, as long as human beings have engaged in organised fighting against each other, there have been some rules of conduct, however rudimentary those rules might be or, or however um, uh, brittle uh, they might be under uh, some circumstances. So there have always been um, uh, certain rules applicable to warfare, but perhaps... Uh, some of the, the major changes happened during the Middle Ages where uh, there evolved a, a fairly detailed um, and elaborate code of conduct for the main combatants of the time in, on European battlefields, that is to say on uh, knights on, on horseback. Um, and then those rules due to technological changes, uh, were were later sort of overtaken by by new developments of the law of armed conflict. But that's probably the the, the starting point in many ways for the modern law. So I just just sort of want to dig in there a little bit to point out that there's a kind of 
uh, a Eurocentrism to the law of armed conflict that we we have today, and that it's it's not that there were no other laws applying elsewhere, is it? It's there's a kind of a contingency about the laws that we have that are seen as international law now. I mean that's right, and the 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 codification of the law of armed conflict really started sort of in the mid 1800s and was largely driven by European states and European lawyers. So they obviously uh, looked at the uh, practices that had dominated in the European context when it comes to warfare. But uh, broadly similar rules and principles have existed in in um, other regions and in other cultures um, throughout the history uh, of warfare, and there are indeed some quite significant similarities between in these different contexts. For example, the idea that, um, say, uh, uh, priests or, or messengers ought to be uh, protected in the context of an armed conflict. Yeah, I think that's a that's a, a useful and an interesting point. I think it's so. Uh, I guess this links to the first question that that I asked. Easy to forget how kind of ritualized warfare is, and it's we imagine it as a kind of anarchy where it's uh, it is in some ways, but in other ways, as you were saying, it's very rule bound, and that's it's a human activity, and like every human activity, it's kind of operating in some system. Indeed, indeed. So let's get specific about what's happening in the the 1850s. What are some of the key moments where there's kind of like a crystallisation of of international uh, humanitarian law? Well, in that period, two important things happened on two different sides of the Atlantic. In America, in the context of the Civil War, a document was developed that has become known as the Lieber Code. It was uh, drafted... Uh, by uh, Francis Lieber, a a German-born political scientist and international uh, lawyer. Um, And it's a document that tried to codify the existing law of armed conflict into a a single uh, handy document uh, which could be uh, used by the forces of the United States. On the other side of the Atlantic, uh, the Battle of Solferino uh, took place in uh, 1859, which was a conflict that, or a a battle that occurred in what is um, modern-day Italy. And it was not the battle as such that was significant for the development of the law of armed conflict, but rather its aftermath, when a Swiss uh, entrepreneur by the name of Henri Dunant witnessed the the, the horrible outcomes of the uh, the conflict, um, organized uh, medical care for many of the wounded soldiers, and later on went on to propose in a, a biographical uh, book um, that there should be some legal protection for medical services um, in the armed conflict, and a humanitarian organization should be set up um, to. Um, um, help the wounded and sick in an armed conflict. And these two sparks then led to this process of codifying and further developing um, uh, the rules that apply in an armed conflict and in a sort of a in a form that is recognizable to us. So in the form of multilateral treaties uh, that actually states can sign on to. So when these rules were uh, developed, were they kind of applied by these European powers broadly or was it in in the Union and um, Confederate forces or was it more narrowly applied 
So apparently the Confederate forces were initially quite resistant to the idea, to the ideas proposed in the Lieber Code devised for the Union forces. But in the course of the American Civil War, the same set of rules was broadly adopted for use on both sides uh, uh, of the conflict. And in the European context as well, um, the first ever Geneva Convention of 1864 uh, contained a well-accepted set of rules, um, which was sort of widely appreciated, uh, and uh, that subsequently went through a series of, of, of updates and further developments. So even though the, the initial developments were quite limited in scope, they, they triggered a broader process of rethinking the law of armed conflict and making uh, the law of armed conflict sort of more uniform. So prior to that, it was often the case that states that entered into an armed conflict uh, engaged also in, in the sort of ad hoc agreements uh, where they agreed on how to deal with medical personnel and so on and so forth. Uh, but it was really the Geneva Convention of 1864 that, that triggered this process of multilateral uh, rulemaking, so rules that potentially could be adopted uh, by all states in the world. Yeah, and I guess that last point really gets to the, the thing I guess I wanted to draw out a little bit, was, which was that in order to have access to these rules, you had to be recognised as a as a state as a sovereign equal and there were um, parts of the world that European powers didn't extend that recognition to and so I'm sure this will be something we'll, we'll talk about in a moment but that's one of the changes over the course of the 20th century is this broadening out from a very a body of law that was created by Europeans for Europe or their their conflict overseas rather than a kind of global system of, of law precisely um, so onto that question, what are some of the changes during the 20th century? So we start with these kind of general conduct rules or what, what did the Lieber Code and the, the, these first declarations, what sort of rules did they contain? So if one looks at the Lieber Code, it was particularly focused on the notion of military necessity. Uh, so it, it tried to limit violence in warfare that was strictly necessary from a military perspective. Uh, but military necessity is, of course, a very flexible term. Military commanders often uh, consider certain things uh, to be necessary than that, that uh, uh, sort of bystanders might not uh, think are, in fact, uh, necessary. Um, but sort of this focus on, on necessity started to be moderated with concepts of humanity uh, on the one hand, and also to some degree with by concepts of, of honor or chivalry, if you will. So the, the, the thinking of the, of the Middle Ages and the idea of uh, combatants as honorable professionals um, sort of played a role in uh, sort of counterbalancing the notions of military necessity and then increasingly the idea of, of humanity and the protection uh, of the human person, a, a process that, uh, particularly in the 20th century, has sort of proceeded along in parallel with the development um, of human rights law. So we have, we have these, these events in the 1860s. 1907 was another key moment in codification. Can you talk a bit about what happened then? Yeah, so in 1899 and 1907, um, the Hague Peace Conferences were convened, and the idea back then was to 
limit their resort to uh, war by states. So that was an early attempt at prohibiting war, if you will. I mean, that attempt as such was not terribly successful, even though some rules were adopted about uh, peaceful settlement of disputes between states. So basically, uh, there were rules that tried to push states towards peaceful resolution of their disputes, but there was no uh, general prohibition put in place um, on the use of um, warfare between states. But as a byproduct of, of these attempts, there emerged a, uh, a set of rules um, known as the Hague Regulations on Land Warfare, which have been a very significant instrument in the law of armed conflict, um, and um, they're still uh, quite significant today, even though in the form of sort of unwritten customary law. So it was the Nuremberg tri Tribunal in the aftermath of the Second World War that recognized that the um, 1907 Hague Regulations had in fact become customary international law and had, had been, become binding on all states, even those that were not represented uh, at the Hague uh, peace conferences. So there was uh, some really key moments of technological transformation over the 20th century. Um, I wondered if you could speak about some of them, or what, what do you think are the sort of you know, transformational moments? Well, there have been numerous technological um, transformations in warfare over uh, uh, the, the course of human history, and some of them have also made a significant difference um, in the context of the law. So perhaps an early example of a technological change that, that impacted on the law in a, in a very meaningful way um, was sort of the end of the period of chivalric warfare um, in Europe sort of towards the end of the Middle Ages. Basically with the introduction of firearms and fairly cheap firearms, warfare was in many ways democratized. So uh, the very expensive equipment, so uh, a horse and uh, a sword and, and sort of very sort of expensive protective gear at the time, which knights used, um, was no longer really required and was in many ways no longer sufficiently protective against the new technology, that is to say, uh, firearms. So that resulted, I think, in a change of, of the law, which until that point had very much focused on the concept of, of, of an honorable combatant and started to move more towards the notion of, of military um, necessity. Um, there were obvious technological changes uh, in the early uh, 20th century, so the introduction of uh, submarine warfare and the introduction of aerial warfare obviously led to some revisions uh, in the law of armed conflict. And then from there on, uh, the law of armed conflict sort of really responded to particular conflicts. So the, the use of uh, submarines and aircraft uh, in the early 20th century directly led to the development of certain rules around them. Uh, the experiences of the uh, Second World War directly led to the conclusion of the 1949 Geneva Conventions. The experiences of the Vietnam War led, on the one hand, to the adoption of ad additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions, and on the other hand, um, certain treaties on the prohibition of of, uh, of particular types of weapons, incendiary weapons, for example, which uh, were prominently used um, in the Vietnam War. So this is napalm? This is napalm, indeed. And so each of these sort of prompted a legal response? 
Well, some of these changes have prompted legal responses and others haven't. And it's interesting to speculate as to why some have led to changes in the law and others have not. Perhaps other than the invention and widespread adoption of gunpowder, the the most significant change that warfare has seen is the introduction of nuclear weapons. So um, weapons of unprecedented uh, destructiveness. And while um, the adoption of gunpowder and firearms led to a change in the law, development of nuclear weapons really didn't. The nuclear weapons powers at the time, uh, and particularly in the 1970s when the additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions were developed, did sort of make suggestions that uh, new developments in the law uh, are not applicable to nuclear weapons and they are somehow a class of weapons of their own that are governed by some special rules of international law. But the International Court of Justice, in its advisory opinion on nuclear weapons, uh, really dismissed that idea and basically said that nuclear weapons are subject to the same rules of the law of armed conflict as, as, as any other weapons developed uh, previously or Uh, subsequently. But there are other examples of weapons that have in fact triggered very particular legal responses and perhaps the most prominent example there is the legal reaction to the widespread use and the the widespread humanitarian effects uh, of anti-personnel landmines. Uh, So particularly when it became possible to sort of mass produce uh, and mass deploy landmines for example by dropping them from aircraft and the increased uh, urbanization of, of warfare sort of in the 70s, 80s, and, and, and 90s. I mean, these really uh, created a, a humanitarian catastrophe in terms of the use of anti personnel landmines. Uh, and through a very sr- strong civil society push, this led to the adoption of a number of treaties um, restricting or prohibiting the use of um, anti-personnel landmines. So interestingly, different technological developments have triggered different responses from the legal community and from policymakers. So let's talk now about some of the, the key contemporary technological challenges that I know you've, you've thought about. Let's start with uh, cyber uh, operations or cyber attacks. What, what's difficult about cyber operations from the context of the law of armed conflict? The difficulty there is that the means of achieving certain um, effects are different from the means of achieving such effects before. So it's possible to uh, do considerable harm, um, including physical harm to the adversary by using various cyber means. And the question there is, to what extent does the existing legal framework apply to those novel types of um, uh, cyber operations? And I think there is a fair bit of consensus at the moment that that if cyber operations lead to uh, physical harm, the same way as sort of regular kinetic uh, warfare, then those cyber operations are governed by the exact same rules as more conventional warfare. The difficulties arise where there's no such physical harm. So the questions around whether... Uh, the destruction of data, for example, that does not uh, cause physical harm, whether that is covered by the law of armed conflict and how that is covered by the law of armed conflict. And indeed, perhaps the most significant challenges uh, when it comes to cyber operations relate to those operations that take place below the threshold of an armed conflict. 
such as the interference in uh, elections or things like that? Precisely. So I think from a legal perspective, those are far more complicated to deal with than the use of uh, uh, malware, for example, to blow up a power plant or, or, or cut off power to a city and so on and so forth. We have quite good ways of thinking about those kinds of situations under the law of armed conflict, but perhaps less so outside the context of an armed conflict. So another thing that you've you've written on is human enhancement um, through drugs or uh, implants. Can you talk a bit about the legal implications of that or some of the bodies of law that might be relevant to thinking about that? Sure. I actually think that when it comes to human enhancement, perhaps the most significant questions revolve around bioethics and human rights law, um, and particularly the human rights of the soldiers uh, who might be subjected to some form of um, human enhancement. And indeed, the, the issues for the law of armed conflict that human enhancement uh, creates uh, tend to be quite niche. So, for example, I have argued that uh, if medical personnel become involved in the administration of uh, various forms of human enhancement, then that medical personnel might risk their protection uh, under the law of armed conflict. There might also be some circumstances where weapons law rules uh, become engaged. So, for example, if we have a, a brain-machine interface that allows a person to control the weapon system by using their mind alone, then uh, the person and the weapon system put together would presumably need to be assessed legally as a novel means of warfare, whereas under normal circumstances we don't really think of the human being as being part uh, of the means of warfare. And this has implications, for example, on the way in which we might carry out uh, the legal reviews uh, of, of novel weapons. And finally, a little bit uh, closer to the work of our research group, what about autonomy um, and the law of armed conflict? So there's been a lot of focus on autonomy when it comes to autonomous weapons, and it's, there's an active uh, policy debate ongoing about uh, autonomy because there's a concern about uh, runaway weapons that might indiscriminately kill people or destroy uh, objects, uh, and, and there have been suggestions that that such weapons might need to be prohibited or at least somehow uh, somehow further regulated. But I think actually autonomy is a broader uh, uh, problem and an opportunity uh, for military technology. So we might also uh, have autonomous um, vehicles that are capable of, of navigating without uh, direct um, uh, human oversight. Uh, or we might have um, decision support systems that, that incorporate some degree of autonomy uh, without those systems actually be, being directly in a position to cause uh, harm to anyone. And there are a number of legal issues that need to be thought through, here, through there, uh, and they probably uh, revolve around sort of two broad problems or issues. One of them is that with autonomous systems, the way in which humans interact with the system changes. So humans play a far more significant role in the development stage of the system than in the use stage. So the question then is that how do those humans ensure that the use of the system ultimately complies with the law? And the other problem is that uh, if there's no 
uh, a person in sort of direct control or in direct interaction with a, with a system when it performs its function, there are questions around who to hold accountable um, when things go wrong. And I think that these concerns apply sort of across the board to um, uh, autonomous weapons systems as, as well as other military systems that might have autonomy in their functions but that are not weaponized. Thanks. I think that's a really great overview of those um, those three issues. So, if if people wanted to explore uh, the relationship between law and or international humanitarian law and technology more, what would you recommend that they look at? Are there books that you've found really useful for your thinking about it? Yeah, there are two books that I, th- I think are particularly useful for understanding how. The, the character of warfare and technological change are interlinked. Um, uh, Martin van Krefeld has written a book called uh, Technology and War, uh, and Max Boot has written a book called War Made New. And both of these books, in slim, somewhat different ways, explore how technological change has, uh, to a very significant extent, driven the way in which armed conflicts actually play out. Um, when it comes to um, the legal dimension of this, so how has law changed or adapted as a result of technological change in warfare, I can't really point to a, a, a single uh, book or work. That the, the discussion there tends to be a bit more siloed, um, sort of focus on, on um, you know, the development of precision-guided munitions and the legal rules uh, that might require their use under some circumstances, for example, or mm-hmm. uh, the development of cyber capabilities uh, and the question of, of, of how international law accommodates uh, those capabilities. Other than your own uh, piece in the International Review of the Red Cross, of course. Which sort of tried to give a bit of a, a backgrounder to uh, sort of law and technological change more broadly, but of course the, the 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 shortcoming or a limitation of that piece is that it doesn't go into any great detail when it comes to particular technologies, and the challenge often is that the technologies are complicated enough on their own, and the development of particular technologies is complicated enough, um, and then to look at different types of technological change as a one big process and its impact on the law um, is is quite a a difficult task. So the book's yet to be written. That's something that uh, perhaps we can work on. Uh, I I certainly hope we do. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us, Ryan. Thank you, Simon. This podcast was made by the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland Law School. A full list of episodes and links to additional material, as well as our contact details, are available on our website. Just search for Law and the Future of War. This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders past and present.